Let's pray together. Father, I pray that this morning as we study your word, that you would speak to our hearts. That you would help me, Father, to rightly proclaim the truth. And that as we together examine what the scriptures say about the Lord's Supper here this morning, that you, Lord, would work in our hearts, that we would rightly understand it, that we would rightly practice it, and that we would rightly rejoice in it. And so, Father, please bless this time and bless us. Bless the proclamation of your word here today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, this morning we're going to be in several different places in Scripture, but kind of our foundational spot. Oh, yeah, if you are a, a child, 12 and under, uh, feel free to come and grab a clipboard and some crayons. There is a... Uh, I'll bump that up. You don't have to be 12 or under. You could be a little older. Uh, but there's clipboards with coloring pages and uh, sermon note sheets up here. So come and grab that. Grab a box of crayons and have at it. All right, so if you would turn in your Bibles uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34 is where we're going to be kind of as the anchor point. But like I said, we're going to be in several different places in Scripture uh, because to get a full theology of the Lord's Supper, you have to kind of be in several different spots. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. I know that sounds intimidating, and I know if you're looking at the sermon note page and you're seeing five points, you're already looking at the clock going, wait a minute, hold on now. Jody's back there already shaking her head. Listen, you weren't here last week, so you get double sermon today, Jody. You got to stay for me to preach last week's sermon too. But so as we continue on with our series through what is, we are the church, as we talk about the church, we've come to the Lord's Supper here today. Um, and as we, as we think about the Lord's Supper, I want to put it into the proper context for us. So to start with, we have to think about Exodus chapter 12. In Exodus chapter 12, God's people, the Israelites, are in Egypt. And God has, through Moses, told Pharaoh to let my people go. And Pharaoh said, no. And so God has been sending plagues upon the land of Egypt of increasing severity in an attempt to get Pharaoh to let his people go. And the Bible tells us over and over again that this happens and Pharaoh says, okay, fine, get out of here. I'm, I'm tired of dealing with frogs in my breakfast cereal. And then his heart is hardened. And he changes his mind and he says no. So we come to this point where finally God says, okay, okay. I'm going to kill all the firstborn, all the firstborn children, all the firstborn of the livestock. I'm killing all the firstborn. And he goes and he tells Moses, he says, go and tell the people of Israel to take a lamb. Each family, each household, take a lamb and sacrifice that lamb at twilight. And take that lamb's blood and spread it on your doorposts. And when you do that, I will know to pass over that house when I come through to kill the firstborn. 
And God also tells them to take that lamb and roast it. He gives specific cooking instructions. All right, we, we, see, we see the God-ordained cookbook. And he tells them what spices to use and how to prepare it. And he says, and eat it all or burn the rest. Don't save it. This is not leftovers for tomorrow. And then he also says, and you need to eat it dressed for the road with your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, ready to leave at a moment's notice. Because when this thing happens, you're gone. And he tells them to remember what, has, what, has, what I have done for you. And remember, he's telling them all of this before he actually does it. And he says, to remember what I've done for you, you're going to eat this every single year. You're going to sacrifice a lamb and cook it like this every single year. You're going to eat it like this, fully dressed every single year. And you're going to explain to your children what I have done. This is, this is God showcasing for His people how He keeps His promises. He promised Abraham that His people would have this promised land. And here they are in a foreign land as slaves. And God is making a way for them to go to the promised land. He is keeping His promise and He is using a sacrificial lamb to do so. And he establishes this special meal. And he commands Israel to, to remember it by eating it. And that's the backdrop for the Lord's Supper that we're looking at today. So before we dive too far in again, I'm going to read our passage in 1 Corinthians 11. And then we'll walk through together the things that we need to understand about the Lord's Supper. So 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 17, it says this. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be, may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or, you despise, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes." Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. 
But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. All right. So, the first thing that we need to understand about the Lord's Supper, the first point in your outline is that the Lord's Supper is a seal of the new covenant. It is a seal of the new covenant. Just before Jesus is going to be crucified, he sits down with his disciples to eat that same Passover meal that was established back in Exodus. Now remember, the Passover meal was a meal that was for families. And so here's Jesus with his disciples, and in a manner of speaking, he is saying, you are my family. You are my family. And this was apparently a very special Passover to Jesus. In Luke 22, 15 and 16, it says, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Jesus has been earnestly desiring to eat this Passover meal with his disciples because he is using it to establish something new. And so as he is establishing this new meal for his followers to participate in, he refers to it as the new covenant in his blood. Luke twenty two nineteen 19 and 20, and he took bread when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is the same new covenant that they had been talking about in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. There's that Passover. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So here's Jesus at this Passover meal saying, This is that new covenant that they talked about. We are eating a meal that signifies that first covenant, when the Lord brought our people out of Egypt, and here I am saying, this is the new covenant where God is going to give us new hearts and he's going to write his law on our hearts and he's going to forgive all of our sins. This is the new covenant. And he's saying this new covenant is not established with the blood of a lamb or with the blood of a bull or a blood of a goat. This covenant is established with my blood. He is going to accomplish all of what God has declared through his death. He is going to bring about the fulfillment of all of those old covenants and bring about this new covenant through the shedding of his blood on the cross. And so as he's doing this, as he's taking these elements that are present in the Passover supper, this bread and this wine, when he says this is the new covenant in my blood, he's not, they're not becoming something different. They're still just bread 
It's still just wine. It's nothing new. But they are an establishment of a new memorial tied to an old promise to seal a new covenant that God is making with His people through Christ. God is taking something. Christ is taking something that has already been established. And He is showing His people, this was always about Me. That's what he's driving home here. When he's doing this with his disciples, he wants them to understand that lamb at the Passover, I'm that lamb. I'm that sacrificial lamb. I am the one whose blood goes on the doorposts that tells God to pass over you with his wrath. That's what he is saying. It is a seal of the new covenant. The next thing that we see is that the Lord's Supper is a proclamation of Christ's death. The Lord's Supper is a proclamation of Christ's death. When Jesus established the Lord's Supper, he told his disciples to keep doing it in remembrance of him. He told them, you keep doing this, this do in remembrance of me. It's written on the front of this table. You can't see it right now because there's a cloth there. But this is something that we are told to continue to do to remember what Christ has done. Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians 11 when he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper is a proclamation of what Christ has done. The elements involved remind us of the giving of Christ's body and the shedding of his blood. They give a visual reminder of these things. When we see the bread, when we see the cup in the Lord's Supper, they are supposed to make us think about the body of Christ that was broken for us and the blood of Christ that was shed for us. They're supposed to bring these things to our memory and also they are a way for us to proclaim together. It's a way for the church to say together, look at what Christ has done for His people. The Lord's Supper is a way for us as a church, to proclaim the gospel to one another. When we collectively take the Lord's Supper, I am saying to Brother Mike, look at what Christ has done for us. Brother Mike is saying to Miss Donna, look at what Christ has done for us. We are all saying to each other, look at what Christ has done for us. It also brings the past into the present. When God gave the instructions to the Israelites for the Passover, he also gave them instructions for how to explain these things to their children. In Exodus 13, 8, he says, You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Now, generations go by and they're still celebrating the Passover, but God's instruction is still the same. You tell your son that we do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And they weren't there, right? They, they were not a part of the physical exodus from Egypt. But what happens is because they are a part of the covenant, because they are a part of the covenant community, they are specifically included in God's action there. God does not want the Israelites to think about the exodus from Egypt as something that he did for his people a long time ago. 
God wants them to think about the Passover and the Exodus as something He is doing for them specifically. That's what He wants them to think about. And so Christ, in establishing the Lord's Supper and linking it to the Passover, He is bringing the past into the present. He is is giving us the ability to say, look what Christ did for me. Christ had me on His mind when He was on the cross. Because He did. And so the Lord's Supper brings that past into the present. And so we proclaim to each other, look at what Christ has done for us. And we proclaim to ourselves, look at what Christ has done for me. He has done this for me. The next thing we see that I want, you, I want us to understand is that the Lord's Supper is a symbol of the church's unity. The Lord's Supper is a symbol of the church's unity. The first type of unity that the Lord's Supper shows us is unity with Christ. One chapter before our passage this morning in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So Paul here in 1 Corinthians is addressing the fact that there are Corinthian Christians who are going to these idol temples and participating in these idol sacrifices for the sake of getting a good meal. They understand, hopefully, Paul is giving them credit there, they understand that an idol is not anything. Idols aren't real. These false gods do not actually exist. And so Paul is not saying, listen, you are are giving power to these things. He's not saying that. But he is saying, do not participate in these idol sacrifices. Because if you do, you cannot at the same time participate in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So that's the main thrust of this passage that Paul is trying to teach. But it's telling us something important about the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a participation in the blood and the body of Christ for Christians. We are participating with him in this. Paul links it to Old Testament sacrifices. He says, listen, the priests who got to eat the sacrifices off of the altar, they were participants in that. It was a a special type of participation that they got to partake in. And we get to do the same thing with Christ in doing the Lord's Supper. And I love what he says there. Christians all over this planet today are going to take the Lord's Supper. 
in every time zone and countries across the globe. And everybody is going to do it a little bit differently. And some people are going to have, some churches are going to have one loaf of bread that everybody tears off of. A lot of churches are, in America are going to have little styrofoam wafers. That's basically what they taste like. But what does Paul say? There's not a bunch of breads. There's one bread. If you take the Lord's Supper, there is one bread that you are participating in. Because there is one Christ. There is one cup because there was one sacrifice of his blood. And so when we take the Lord's Supper, we are participating with Christ. We are unified with Christ. We are, as the Bible tells us, we are receiving Christ's benefits. Now, I want to explain what I mean by this. So let me give you an analogy. Think about what happens in preaching. Okay, think about what happens in preaching. You show up on Sunday morning, and I would say, by and large, most of us in this room are already Christians. So you show up here on Sunday morning, you already trust Christ. You already trust Christ. But when someone gets up to the pulpit and they proclaim Christ from Scripture, the gospel comes to you again in power. In that moment, hopefully, you embrace Christ anew. In that moment, you trust him more fully. You submit to him more earnestly. You experience forgiveness and peace with God more intensely. As you hear the word of God proclaimed and you think about what Christ has done, those things become more and more fresh in your mind and in your heart. Something similar happens in the Lord's Supper. You already have Christ by faith. But when you receive the Lord's Supper, you receive him all over again. The physical signs support and strengthen your faith. You receive Christ's benefits anew every time you take the Lord's Supper. So that's how the Lord's Supper brings unity with Christ. But the Lord's Supper also brings unity with one another. In our passage in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is taking issue with how they are taking the Lord's Supper. And there's two things that they're doing that he doesn't like. And one of them is that they are not unified. They're taking it separately. They are divided amongst themselves and the rich are over here and the poor are over here and the rich are just, they show up when they want to and they're gorging themselves because they're not caring about the other people. They're not worried about waiting for one another. They just want to get their grub on. And so Paul says, no, wait for one another. Do this together. Do this together. He, say, he literally says to them that because of their division and their wrong understanding that what they are doing is not the Lord's Supper. So notice that. If you do not do the Lord's Supper together, and if you do not do it rightly, it's not the Lord's Supper. It's not the Lord's Supper unless you do it the way the Bible prescribes. And so because the Lord's Supper is something done by the gathered body, we are doing these things together. We are participating in the blood and body of Christ together. We are receiving these elements together, and therefore, we are receiving these benefits together. This, this reminder of Christ continually draws us together as one body, refreshing our minds and hearts as to why we're here. The Lord's Supper is a celebration of the grace of God that he has shown us. And it is a celebration that we all, we all partake in together. We are unified together because as we take the supper together, we are reminded of the grace of God 
together. I look across this room and I think about the fact that I likely would not know any of you if it were not for the blood of Jesus Christ. His blood has brought us together and the Lord's Supper is a reminder of that and it is a strengthener of our unity. And so we are also further unified because we are all taking steps to discern the body. In other words, we are taking steps to make sure that we are all together. We are taking steps to make sure that we are all understanding the Lord's Supper together. We are all recognizing that we are taking it rightly. We are making sure that there is not conflict among us that is causing disunity. We are impressing upon our own hearts over and over again the importance of loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. And not taking that for granted, we are unified because of those things. The next thing that we need to understand about the Lord's Supper is that the Lord's Supper is a renewal of our commitment. The Lord's Supper repeatedly reenacts our response to the gospel. It repeatedly reenacts our response to the gospel. We are effectively saying, as we receive the representatives of the body and blood of Jesus in the form of these elements, We are saying, this is true, that the gospel is true. Christ did die for me. And so we're saying, this is true, and this is for me. That Jesus' body was given for us, that his blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins, and we receive the body and blood of the Lamb of God given to us that God's wrath might pass over us. We can think of the Lord's Supper as a repeated ratification of this new covenant. Mark 14, 22-24. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. There's a parallel to that in Exodus 24. Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So Jesus in Mark is reflected as saying, This is the blood of the covenant. This is my blood of the covenant. As a parallel to Moses saying, Behold the blood of the covenant. And then what happens? Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet as if it, as it were a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. They beheld God and ate and drank. So we see this establishment of a covenant and they respond by eating and drinking. And here's Jesus establishing a new covenant in the same way and we respond by eating and drinking. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, God is attesting his commitment by presenting the signs of Jesus' body and blood to us. He is visibly extending to us his promise that if we trust in Christ, we will be saved. And every time we take the Lord's Supper, we are attesting that Christ is ours and that we give ourselves wholly to Him. We are also committing anew to one another. So like I said earlier, Paul's issue in 1 Corinthians 11, he was talking about how they were divided, how they were, some were gorging themselves and getting drunk and others were going hungry. 
The underlying issue there is that they were not loving one another. The church in Corinth was not loving one another. We cannot be committed to Christ and not be committed to one another. 1 John 4.20 If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. To be bound together to Christ is to be bound to one another. There's no way around that. You cannot have the covenant without the covenant community. These thoughts point back to our increased unity with Christ and with each other as well, working to strengthen that unification. So you see these things all threaded through all of these points. The last point this morning. A reminder of our hope in Christ's return. The Lord's Supper is a reminder of our hope in Christ's return. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 11? For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, what? Until He comes. There is an inherent signal that this is pointing to Jesus coming back. And this is reinforced by what Jesus said in the establishment of the supper. Matthew 26, 29. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. So we see this language about the wedding feast of the Lamb in Revelation. And this is what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, my next time to sit and eat with my people is coming at the end. And so we eat and drink together to remind us of what Christ has done and to look ahead to what Christ is going to do. And that is an incredibly beautiful thought. It's spelled out in Isaiah 25. Listen closely to this text as I read. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. That's what we are looking forward to. Brothers and sisters, the Lord's Supper is an expression of our hope. Our hope for salvation in the death of Christ and our hope for glorification and unification with God in Jesus' second coming. The Lord's Supper points us to when Jesus comes back. And so as we close, as we close, let me define the Lord's Supper. And this is a long definition, but it's a good one. No, I didn't write it, just FYI. The Lord's Supper is a church's act of communing with Christ and each other and of commemorating Christ's death by partaking of bread and wine and a believer's act of receiving Christ's benefits and renewing their commitment to Christ and His people, making the church one body and marking it off from the world. The Lord's Supper is a believer's response to God's Word. 
It's how we respond to what God has done. And so when we hear the word of God proclaimed, we respond as believers through the Lord's Supper. It's something that we should do often. How often we do it is up for discussion. But I think the New Testament sets forth a picture for us that this was happening with great regularity within the church. Acts 2, 42-47 talks about how they were devoting themselves day by day to the breaking of bread. So this was something that happened often. Now I want to address a couple things. One of the most common worries about the idea of doing the Lord's Supper more often in our South Louisiana context, even to say we do it every week, is that that sounds really Roman Catholic, right? The Catholics do the Lord's Supper every week. That's a Catholic thing. Listen, the Catholics are not wrong about the Lord's Supper because of how often they do it. The frequency is not the problem with the Catholic Church. What's wrong with the way the Catholic Church does the Lord's Supper is that the Catholic Church believes in something called transubstantiation. They believe that when the priest blesses the elements, they literally turn into the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. They literally believe that you are participating in some sort of spiritualized cannibalism where you are literally eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Jesus. That's what the Catholic Church actually teaches. And they teach that because of that, when you take the Lord's Supper as a, part, as, as a Roman Catholic, you are receiving an extra amount of grace from God. That's the way that they understand it. So that's why they do it every week. They do it every week because they want that extra grace. That, that's the issue there. It has nothing to do with how often they do it. It has to do with why they do it and how they understand it. And just for the record, transubstantiation is not biblically accurate. Okay? There is nothing that transforms these things magically into real flesh and real blood. And you do not get extra grace from God by consuming them. Another issue that people raise when we talk about taking the Lord's Supper more frequently is that it has the potential to lose what makes it special. They feel like if we do it more often, it's not as special anymore. It's more meaningful when it's rare. My response to this is that the Lord's Supper is meaningful because of what it represents and what it does for us. And that's what makes it special. Being rare does not necessarily make something special. Think of it like a hug from your spouse or a hug from someone that you love. If you only get one hug per quarter, are you going to refuse extra hugs because it makes your once quarterly hug less special? Of course not. That's absurd. A hug from someone that you love is something that draws you closer together. It increases your unity. It, it, it represents your commitment to one another. The Lord's Supper should be thought about in a similar fashion. It's not less special because we do it more often. It's more meaningful because we do it more often. Because it further brings us together as a people and it helps us to further understand what Christ has done for us. And so church, this morning as we, as we close, here is what I encourage you to think about the Lord's Supper. Think that it's special. 
Think that it's for you. Think that it has deep theological meaning. Think that it has deep personal blessing to us. And desire it. Desire to take the Lord's Supper because it brings about unity with Christ and with each other. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the blessing of the Lord's Supper that you have given to us that we might further understand and enjoy the benefits of Christ. Please bless us this morning as we partake of it together that we would be participants in what Christ has done and that we would rejoice together in what God is going to do. Help us, Father, in all of these things to glorify Jesus together. We pray this in His name. Amen.